Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to, hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. There is no denying that in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, all of our thoughts are with the health, the safety of all of those surrounding us, all of those impacted by this pandemic. And of course, during those concerns, during those worries, tennis can take a back burner as it should. But there's also no denying that this global pandemic has shined a spotlight on the organizational structures that govern tennis, whether it be the ATP, the WTA, the ITF, the Grand Slams, the ATP and WTA player councils, the lack of formal unions for either set of players, that there's not one unified, coherent tennis body that the community can all turn to in this time of crisis, has certainly uh, exposed some of the flaws within the structure of our game. And of course, there are so many questions surrounding tennis's return. Can a sport with the international nature, uh, or can a sport, given the international nature of tennis, balance the sort of rigorous testing and, you know, rigorous regulation that would be required to bring back the sport? Are there governing bodies in place that could execute those tests, that could facilitate those tests? Are there governing bodies in place that can protect the interests of the players to make sure their information isn't taken advantage of, to make sure that they uh, maintain some form of privacy, while also ensuring that these players can negotiate as a coherent unit? Uh, as one body because their say would certainly be stronger in those cases. Of course, the facilitation of the player relief funds has caused a stir because it's not exactly clear who's going to be facilitating that money. Uh, Obviously, that money has come from various organizational structures as well, but we've seen uh, differing federations from across the globe pitch in to help their players domestically as well. There's a lot of chaos in the effort, and of course, there's also a lot of positives coming out of it as well, but some of the biggest questions remaining, as I mentioned, what is tennis going to look like when it comes back and when will it be possible for professional tennis, at least at the ATP and WTA level, to come back? And that's why we are so excited to bring today's guest onto the podcast. He is a writer for the Sports Business Journal who focuses on tennis with his work. And that, of course, is the work of Brett McCormick. And you listeners, if you listen to the Mini Break podcast, you know quite frequently I've been referencing Brett's work for sportsbusinessdaily.com on that mini break podcast because he has been on top of all of the financial implications of the coronavirus pandemic, how it influences the various federations, the various tournaments that are hoping to put on events, uh, and how it uh, influences the various levels of tournaments as well. And, you know, today we bring him on the podcast to talk about his latest article. And I will say his article is locked behind the paywall at the Sports Business Journal. But guess what, folks? Good journalism requires resources. So if you are able, please go support the journalism it matters more now than ever what's the washington post line dark uh democracy dies in darkness i wouldn't say it's that extreme for tennis uh but certainly you if you want to be a well-informed on the you know if you want to be well-informed on the mechanics the organizational structures reading brett's pieces will certainly be beneficial to you and we talked about his article fan revenue big slice of tennis pie and how that influences whether certain tournaments will decide whether to come back or not on the schedule you know we try and explain why you continue to hear about the U.S. Open and the French Open jockeying for position on the scheduling, doing whatever it takes to play those events this year uh, because of the potential revenue they stand to generate from playing those events. They don't have the sort of insurance policies that guarantees them a sum the way Wimbledon does, and so they will do whatever they can to try and play the event this year. Uh, we also talk about you know the percent of fan revenue, the percent of ticket receipts and gate receipts as applied to lower level tournaments as well, and why you know TV revenue for those events is just not enough to keep them going to make it worthwhile just playing the events. And just to give you some figures, we're going to talk about now: twenty two percent of the revenue from Masters one thousands come from broadcast six. 
16% for 500s, 13% for 250s. That's just not sustainable given all of the additional costs and preventative measures that they will want to take to ensure the safety and health of all of the players, participants for their events. So, you know, Brett lays out the economics behind the decisions uh, that all of these tournaments face. And I want to get to that discussion now. And because, you know, he does a better case just explaining his article than I ever could. But before we do that, I want to remind you listeners that these Great Shot podcasts are made possible by our new friends at DraftKings. And as we repeatedly mention on our Crack Rackets podcast, tennis is maybe the only sport that when going full-time sees action 24-7, 365 days a year. Now, that is not the case, but you know, fan, given that fans of the game are routinely treated to spectacular play, uh, we do our best here at Crack Rackets to break down all of the results, analyze the game's emerging trends. We've done a lot of that lately, and offer accurate predictions of what we think will happen next. But that being said, as fun as it is to watch watch the sport break down each match. We're all still tennis players at heart, and as such, we all want a piece of the action. That's why we at Cracked Rackets are thrilled to announce our new partnership with DraftKings. We know listeners of this podcast are the most informed tennis fans in the business. But what's the point of all of that knowledge if you can't take advantage of it? That's why it's we think it's time for you to bet on tennis. And thanks to our partnership with DraftKings, all new users will get a racket-cracking sign-up bonus of up to $1,000. Here's how it works. First, you're going to create your DraftKings Sportsbook account and make a deposit. The good news for you, DraftKings will match your first deposit at 20% up to $500. Then, you're going to make your first bet, and DraftKings will also match that bet with a risk-free first bet of up to $500. Now, I know what you're thinking. How can you get involved? Just go to dkng.co slash cracking rackets to play. That's dkng.co slash cracking rackets. Do you have a gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey, West Virginia, or Pennsylvania, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, and 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. You must be 21 years or older to play and can only play in participating states. Again, go to eligibility restrictions apply, but go to DraftKings.com to learn more about them. And in general, DKNG.co slash Cracking Rackets to learn more, to play, and to let our friends know that we were the ones who sent you there all right with that being said we you know finances is the theme of today's podcast so it's only fitting that we get to our conversation with sports business journals brett mccormick introducing coco golf's signature shoe more than just a tennis shoe it's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette it's designed to enhance speed and power on the court the multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out the coco cg1 empowers you to dominate the game learn more and purchase the coco cg1 at newbalance.com Joining us on the podcast today, if you are a listener to our mini break podcast, you know I frequently refer to this guest's work. Uh, He is a general assignment and tennis reporter at Sports Business Journal. He has been on top of all the merger negotiations, of the financial implications of the coronavirus on our beloved sport of tennis. Brett McCormick, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, it's... um an exciting time to be covering sports business. It's a wild time in history. And, you know, I'm um, thinking about everybody that's dealing with uh, the coronavirus pandemic, but it, it, you know, it has created a lot of, it brought a lot of the business of sports, you know, out of the shadows and, and into the, um, you know, forecourt. Front court. No, absolutely. <laughs> Into the public conscious. There's yeah, no sure. denying that. And, uh, you know, I, I do want to obviously talk tennis specifically, but in a broader sense, uh, in your, you know, and, and I'm not saying I don't expect you to know the histories of, you know, what sports looked like in 1666, but I, I can't imagine there's ever been anything comparable to this on any level for any sort of sport, even a labor stoppage for, for a league or a boycott of events by the athletes. Nothing can compare compared to this sort of global pandemic where we've seen just a complete shutdown of athletics around the globe, right? Yeah, I would, I would say World War II would be the closest thing, but you really didn't have sophisticated, you know, like uh, uh, highly um, recognized sports leagues by that point. I mean, you had Major League Baseball, I think would have been about it. Um, you know, that 
all the other leagues were either in their infancy or didn't exist. Um, you know, tennis wasn't even in its um, open era for another like 20 something years. So <clears throat> the like complete, I mean, all the things you've seen, like the, this is the first time this has been canceled since blank, you know, is, is always 1940 to 1945, you know, the Kentucky Derby and Wimbledon and things like that. But um, no, I don't, I don't think there's really, anything in in the modern sports era that compares to this, you know, because even if you'd had a labor situation in one sport, you know, it wouldn't have almost uniformly impacted every other sports league across the globe. I mean, I think the, the, the sports being played right now, I think is in like Belarus, Nicaragua, Taiwan, and South Korea, <laughs> and, and maybe a little bit in Florida. Um, you know, so it's, it, it's been uniformly felt across the globe, which I think is, pretty unprecedented at least in the modern era of pro sports yeah and of course the difference between world war ii and now the complexity of media rights and who owns right. the streaming you know components who owns the rights to certain footage all of that has been complicated by this i'm curious who do you think is taking a bigger bat you know windfall in terms of the uh, financial implications is it the leagues themselves the sports themselves or is it the owner of the media rights the people who are expected to sell those spaces to advertisers make money off of that which side of the equation is taking a bigger bat I'm sure both are right now, but you know, is it the are the leagues maybe t- you know more hurt than maybe some of the other entities? Yeah, I would say the the provider of the content is going to be more at threat, and so I don't I don't think uh, I don't think much has happened on this front yet. You've seen some in like European soccer, and um, I know DAZN, you know the um, sports channel D A Z N. It took me a long time to realize how you said that until I heard somebody say it, but um, the zone was the first broadcaster that basically said internet, they're, they're big internationally. They're not really big in the U S yet, but um, internationally they were saying, you know, if it's, if, if the sports that we paid for are not played, then we are going to need money back um, or we're not going to, we're, we're going to withhold uh, payments. And so that's, that's the only one that I've seen so far. Um, there've been a few others like where it's been rumored or they're negotiating, you know, renegotiating contracts and stuff, but, um, the onus is definitely on the, on the provider of the content. And so that, that's why really that's like what led me to this, um, story that's going to be in sports business journal on Monday about, um, tennis and the possibility of playing with no fans was looking at, you're going to see, um, a lot of high interest and high, um, motivation from the NBA, the NFL, um, maybe even college football, um, but uh, definitely, you know, the NHL as well. T- uh, leagues that have serious uh, TV contracts, you know, get a large percentage of their revenue from uh, TV deals are going to be motivated to to try to play in some fashion. You know, like if they can get on a, a proverbial like deserted island or in a biological bubble, you know, get everybody quarantined and then be able to play for TV, you can salvage like some of the year financially, you know, where I think most sports organizations realize you're not gonna be able to have fans for a long time and, and if you do get fans back it's going to be a lot less than you would have had in a, in a normal year yeah i think that's a perfect segue because the reason i wanted to have you on today is as you mentioned your article and i'm not sure when this uh, podcast is going to be released but your article will be released on monday may 11th and you know it it will talk about you know what will tennis look like when it comes back will there be fans <coughs> present what is the you know uh, the necessity for tennis to play events even if they are without fans and why the motivations behind that are different uh but let's start you know with a larger picture because again this is something you've talked about as well um, in your coverage for Sports Business Journal, why tennis in particular, because it's not a domestic sport. And we've started to see local exhibition tournaments come back across the globe. You can think of Germany and Sweden, and even here in the United States, there have been some exhibition events. But, uh, you know, why does the international nature of tennis, in your opinion, uh, prove to be a particular problem in terms of bringing back the tour level events? Yeah, so you've got um, well a perfect a perfect way to look at this is to look at something that's almost the opposite. And so World Team Tennis uh, was like happy to you know encouraged to see that they're being proactive and talking about playing in one location because that's um, the exact opposite of touring tennis is a homogenous league that largely takes place in one area 
and has top-down leadership coming from you know one specific source so you've got a commissioner in carlos silva who can say you know along with other decision makers but you know there he's going to have the final say this is what we're going to do and we'll we'll play this in one location people won't have to travel and um you know we can we can do uh uh COVID-19 mitigation and 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 security and safety and things like that and and that's how all these other american sports leagues are going to be able to play without fans i think uh, much quicker than tennis um <clears throat> you know the nba takes place maybe in uh two countries um mostly in one um nfl takes place in one country you know you've got a commissioner that can that can make a decision really quickly you know the nba had um i think it was rudy gobert got uh you know announced he had coronavirus on march 12th and i think that night you know adam silver put the league on suspension so um tennis uh you know first of all as you said it's global so you've got um uh, got players representing 47 different countries that are in the top 100 of the atp and wta um you've got tournaments in what like 30 to 35 different countries um and you know you look at two of the big stretches that are left on the calendar and it's um the united states and china which are you know the have been the two hardest hit places in the world um you know with the exception of maybe a few others so um you know these these this international nature of the sport creates so many problems as far as so many challenges as far as um what what uh, travel restrictions you have in certain countries um you have very different reactions to the uh pandemic in certain countries i mean like if you were in germany or south korea right now you might feel a lot uh better about the entire situation you know like that those countries have handled it a little bit better if you're in the united states or russia or uh you know italy or somewhere like that or spain you know they didn't handle it as well haven't handled it as well and so um you know mentally you may be in a different state as well and you know you have to consider these are players or independent contractors uh, the tournaments are based all over the world and are you know widely varying financial um uh strengths so there's so it's so um decentralized that i i really strongly feel that tennis will be the last sport that will return to any kind of normalcy during the pandemic be, be for that very reason yeah i think half the problem is how many competing interests there are and this is something we've all been talking about as you know fans of tennis members of the tennis media community is it makes it difficult to coordinate any sort of effort how do you ensure that all the players are being tested frequently enough and who's doing that sort of testing who's implementing it even with this player relief funding who's going to ensure that the right players are getting uh, the sort of you know that the relief is getting to the players in need of it the most as quickly as possible and who's going to facilitate all of that it, it just because of all the competing interests it makes things difficult and in terms of getting into the revenue behind the tournaments because obviously tennis needs tournaments to play to make any money players need to be playing events so that they can compete for money that's where all of the income comes from coaches need these events to happen so that their players are competing so that they can get paid and every aspect of professional tennis obviously needs professional events in order for the pro tour to be executed but beyond even just you know players get revenue for playing tournaments where are the tournaments making their money from and why does that you know this global pandemic the idea of fans not immediately rushing into head to events why does that it present a particular problem for tennis yeah and so w- when you've got leagues that are really pushing to play without fans um it's because they've got tv money that can help them out you know kind of salvage the year so tennis is and I would, I would couch this first by saying that when I say tennis, there's going to be I'm, – I'm referring to the tours um, and the slams. But the slams are really in their own category, and then all the rest of the um, pro tennis events are in this other category. So if you kind of looked at like a hierarchy of um, the leagues that take the most money from TV, you know, NFL would be on top probably uh, – definitely a majority of an NFL team's revenue would come from TV money. So over 50%, um, at least, if not more than that. Um, the NBA would probably be around half, would probably be around 50%. Um, the NHL would be below that. Uh, Major League Baseball would be below that. You know, they play so many games, so ticket revenue and game day revenue is a big, uh, bigger deal for them. Um, and then uh, tennis tournaments that are not Grand Slams would be well below that. Um, so 
the the slams would be probably around the NBA range. You know, probably about half of their money coming from TV, and th- and these are averages, of course. Um, you know, there'd be some differences, but um, you know, about fifty percent of their money is going to come from TV, and that and that in large part is because of these global audiences that they have. I mean, the U.S. Open, you know, in the U.S. may not be like a stop what you're doing and watch um, event, but uh, they, you know, they have hundreds of millions of viewers worldwide. So that so the the pull. Um, the viewership worldwide is immense, um, which which puts them in a little bit different category from the rest of tennis. So, you know, it, it, when you're thinking that maybe the U.S. Open may be able to pull off a tournament without fans, um, part of that is because of their um, the the TV situation for them is going to be abnormal for the sport of tennis. Um, I did have uh, from in the story on Monday, um, I, I'd gotten from a source. The twenty official twenty seventeen ATP tour figures that showed the average percentage of tournaments revenue that came from TV. Uh, for the Masters one thousand levels, twenty two percent of their revenue comes from TV. Um, five hundred five hundreds get about sixteen percent, and two fifty is only about thirteen percent. Um, so that shows you. I mean, for a two fifty playing without fans is a like vastly different um, set of circumstances than the U.S. Open playing without fans, or for example, the French Open playing without fans, you know, the French Open also having the um, monetary motivations of all the uh, money they've spent on stadium renovations and stuff, you know, which is which is another reason they probably want to have their tournament this year because they need income. But, um, but I mean, you, you can see right there, the, the Masters 1000 level tournaments, I mean, at an average of 22% revenue coming from TV, I mean, that's just not that big of a piece of the pie. So that right there shows you um, the money is coming from elsewhere. And, and in tennis's case, it's going to be generally from uh, what I would call game day revenue, which is like ticket sales. Um, and, t- you know, a, a much smaller piece of that would be all the assorted things, you know, parking and shirts and hot dogs and stuff like that. Um, but ticket sales being primarily the biggest part of that. And then sponsorship money, which is going to um, be a lot different from other sports. Uh, you know, a lot of sponsors in the NFL want to get on TV. Um, so they're either going to have, they're going to have like, you know, signage in the stadium that's going to show up on TV or, or something like that. Um, tennis sponsorship is more about hospitality. So, you know, kind of whining and dining clients and, and having the suites and luxury boxes. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a different clientele in, in tennis, you know, you have like a more affluent international, well-traveled, educated audience. Um, and it's a lot of people doing business at these tournaments. Um, for example, the, president of uh, or ceo bnp paribas america um when i talked to him about the about indian wells um, before that tournament got scrapped he told me they do uh, they host over two thousand clients over the two weeks um in their in their box at the at the tournament so i mean really getting work done and you know you're not able to do that if people aren't able to be on site so um ticket sales and the sponsorship revenue that would um, undoubtedly change sponsorship revenue would change if there was a um, tournament without fans because it doesn't mean that the sponsors would you know completely flee but they're definitely going to be renegotiating because they're not getting what they pay for which is probably you know lots of champagne and and court and, you know great <laughs> seats so um so those two pieces are are so huge for tennis that um when you when you talk about business wise and this isn't even you know Put aside the fact that the, the the health risk is legitimate and and real um, for a sport that's so international. I mean, business wise, the business model of tennis is not overly conducive um, for the vast majority of tournaments. I mean, there's there's four Grand Slams, and there's 122 other tournaments. You know, the on the ATP and WTA tour. So, I don't know. Um, hold on, I got my calculator. What's <laughs> I'm going to do this math real fast. So 122. No, so while you do that, I will just add on to that. A, 97, 97% uh, of the tournaments are not Grand Slams. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, ex- exactly. That, yeah. That, and to answer your question, that's a lot of them. But yeah. So to parse through what you said there, because there are a lot of fans, fascinating tidbits. Part A, just a comment on my own, to your point about the affluent nature of tennis fans. Hot dogs is not the thing the tournaments are selling. It right. is, you know, the spaghetti <laughs> right. trays. It's the ice cream sundaes. It's the mm-hmm. taco trays. I think I saw sushi at Western and Southern last year. And, yeah. you know, as 
a man from the Midwest, I don't mind saying, I feel like we're not known for our sushi. So I feel like that's <laughs> something that could have been on the cut list. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, um, to, so can you just repeat those numbers one more time? And yeah. again, full disclosure, and since I'm talking to you as the source, I don't mind saying I'm going to steal your work. Um, but the percent of the revenue at the slams, the masters, the 250s, the 500s, that is not, or, you know, what percent TV revenue, uh, or excuse me, uh, yeah, TV revenue accounts for? Slams are going to be closer to so that if the NBA is half, uh, half of their revenue, half of an NBA team's revenue comes from TV money. Um, the slams are going to be around there somewhere. I, I don't want to say fifty percent exactly, but and and these are you know these are estimates of course, but um, they're going to be around there. So so for them, TV is a is a legitimate consideration, um, but it drops like pretty quickly. Um, Masters one thousand level is going to draw about twenty two percent of its revenue from TV. Um, 500s are going to get about 16% of their money from TV and 250s it's uh, 13%. So 22, 16 and 13 um, compared to let's say slams are between 40 and 50. Um, you know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty big drop, especially when you consider that the NFL is um, the majority of their, um, a, a majority of their uh, revenue is going to come from TV. So definitely over 50% and, and potentially greater for certain teams. Yeah, and what that tells me, and I think something you've seen play out at the scheduling level, I suppose, on tours, is that a you know these two fifty, these five hundred, these premier you know internet or these international events, they could take a bath. They might not be able to recover from one year's absent because they are losing on so much revenue that they need to continue to operate. And I want to get to that component in a second, but let's get back to the grand slams because we've seen the sort of jockeying on the schedule between them that shows, particularly between the U.S. Open and the French Open that both uh, organizations clearly intend on playing the event if possible with the you know French Open they made the first move really of the quarantine scheduling period they wanted to put their event immediately after the US Open and everyone was just like really you're going to do that you don't want to talk to us before you make that sort of announcement and you know clearly they have gone back since then they've moved it back I think a couple of weeks to where uh, qualifying starts the 20th but the French Open main draw wouldn't start until the 27th Similarly, for the U.S. Open, we've heard, you know, first it was absolutely not. We're not going to play outside of New York. And now it's like, okay, now we're considering playing outside of New York, but we'd really like to have fans. And now it's okay. We just really want to play the event. And even at this point, if there's not fans, that's something we'd be interested. I read a number that the U.S. Open generates $400 million of the about $480 million the USTA generates in total revenue throughout a year. I also read a stat that only, it's like a little bit less than a third of that I think it was like a hundred million of the 400 million or maybe a little bit over that which is a sizable amount of money but still comes from you know gate receipts and yeah. concessions and all of those various things do those numbers add up to what you've been researching and then you know part two even if we don't get the full tour events back if safely if able to be conducted safely would you expect to see the slams both try and go this year yeah, I'll answer the second one first. I, I would say, yeah, I, I think they definitely have um, motivations to do to do that. They also have uh, time, and while you know there is, they they need plenty of advance notice to get these things moving. I, I think you know um, September. I would say they have to would start making decisions or like big decisions would be made probably by June or July. But they they do have some time to figure out like how to how to make it happen. Um, but and as far as the numbers, I'm not you know I don't, I wouldn't want to sign off the on those. I'm not 100 percent sure. But um, think about this. I mean, they had 700 and uh, what was it, like 740 thousand people attended uh, paid to attend the um, tournament last year. Um, Chris Widmeyer, who's the um, head of uh, corporate communications for the USTA, told me mentioned to me while I was talking to him that the average U.S. Open fan stays on site for eight hours. Uh, which is, you know, would span two meals. Again, you're talking, you, like you said, it's probably not hot dogs. It might be a uh, lobster roll or something a little <laughs> nicer. And then, you know, some of those $12 beers or whatever they cost. But um, no, I mean, the, just the, the amount of people that attend um, is, it's the biggest sporting event in the U.S. You know, it's more akin to like a World Cup or Olympics than a, than a normal American sporting event. So playing without fans, I mean, would be a major hit to their bottom line. But Again, I mean, if you know, they, I think they'd be able to salvage it with um, the TV money, and then 
Boucher, who is the uh, chief revenue officer of the USDA, he's, he's in the story that's running Monday. Um, he had mentioned to me that he their their thinking on this had come around like in the last like uh, only like a few weeks because Mike Dowse, who's the um, new CEO of USDA, had said in mid April that it was highly unlikely they would play without fans. And then, you know, I was talking to Widmeyer last week and he was like, you know, is it our number one desire to play without fans? Absolutely not. But do we think we can now do it? We're starting to think more and more. Yes. So, so like, you know, this thing, this thing is like changing so fast and you know, people are learning about the, the virus and how to deal with it and things so quickly that, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see if their positions change a few more times, you know, before the final decision is made. But um, one thing that Lou Shera told me that it kind of uh, helped their thinking was that sponsors had not um, completely backed away from them, you know, even if they didn't have fans. So basically they would have to renegotiate a bunch of the deals. The sponsorship would be different, but his impression and the, the message he had gotten from sponsors you know which the sponsors of the u.s open are you know titans i mean you got jp morgan and american express and mercedes-benz and etc um had, had seen or saw that there would be value in being involved with what could be like a historic event you know a, a really weird and different um but unique and special u.s open if it happens without fans um and i think this is why more and more i really don't think they're going to try to play elsewhere because i think even the possibility of having it in New York would be almost like a kind of like a post nine 11 symbolism to it. You know, like we we're we haven't fully beaten this thing, but we are beating it. You know, I, I think they see almost more value in that than moving it, you know, to Cincinnati or Indian Wells or wherever um, and, and trying to do that um, because, you know, a 42 acre campus, they can host, they can host a lot of people there. Um, but also with a 42 acre campus, you can mitigate coronavirus a little or COVID-19 a little bit easier. You know, you got more room. Um, uh, you can spread spread entrances and exits out and, and you know, you can, um, it gives them more room to work with. So um, I, I think the thinking is gonna change again, I'm sure of it, <laughs> but I kind of feel like the thinking may move more in the direction of, of the US Open playing without fans because I think they're starting to see through modeling that they can do it. And then also I think their initial um, uh, preconception that sponsors would, you know, not be into it has turned out to be, you know, wrong because I think it, it sounded like sponsors actually were interested. It just would be done differently than they had done in the past. Mm -hmm. And you, you sort of alluded to the sponsors there. And so if sponsors remain interested, but you can't – it's hard to imagine they would be, you know, agree to the same sort of terms they would if it was the right. normal full-fledged event. And right. same idea maybe with the TV media side. Maybe that deal gets changed a little bit as well. But, you know, I, I guess if their intent is to play it and safety and health regulations allow them to play it, should players and fans expect, you know, the revenue to look different for the tournament would the prize money immediately be adjusted or would they try and you know keep the semblance of what they were doing the previous years yeah no i think this would be everybody i talked to for this story was like there were said there would have to be some some give and take you know because um there's going to be less revenue um in some cases there could be more unexpected expenses i mean nobody knows yet nobody has a system or a, a like detailed plan of how to mitigate COVID-19, you know, for a public sports event. Um, so the testing that would be right. Required right. For all these I mean, athletes, I mean yeah. none of that, you know, like how much hand sanitizer do you need? How many extra bodies do you <laughs> need to, to clean um, restrooms? How do you, how do you do anything? And this is without fans I'm talking about. I mean, like they had mentioned Wimbledon, um, a Wimbledon without fans still would have had 5,000 people on the grounds because of all the people required to run the tournament. Um, or, or that are participating in the tournament. So, you know, just because um, you're not having fans at these events doesn't mean that it's a ghost town. You know, I mean, th these events are so large and so long that, you know, there's still going to be a lot of people around. So, um, you know, I, I think that are, there's there's that question that is that is really big, especially, and, th and that's another aspect of where for a 250 or, you know, a, even some 500s, I mean, that's, that's another aspect that, that gets makes it very the math doesn't quite work you know okay so you've saved money maybe if you were like um like for example the atlanta open or the winston-salem open that have you know kind of these 
temporary pop-up stadiums. Maybe you can save money by not having to build um, a grandstand or, or, or build a grandstand in the same way, but potentially your savings are offset by, you know, this, these thousands of gallons of hand sanitizer that you have to buy this consultant that you had to hire that you wouldn't have previously, who's a, you know, biosecurity expert. Um, you know, so there, there's that part of it is still unknown. I mean, nobody's, nobody's really done it yet. Uh, I think that's why everybody is watching, um, Korean baseball pretty intently in the sports business world in the U S because they want to see, you know, they're trying to see how this works and, and what kind of things they can borrow, what they need to do. So, um, you know that 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 part of it is still is still really unknown and, and is um, could could be a considerable considerable expense, especially the bigger the bigger the tournament. Mm-hmm. And to flip gears from the biggest tournaments to the smaller ones, as you mentioned, because the majority of them are just going to take a bath by not having the ability to run the event. Let's say we get to a place where around September one it becomes feasible. And again, safety and health of you know not of not related to tennis is obviously the most important thing above anything else. And tennis is a luxury that's been proven now more than ever. But still, just this is a tennis podcast. We're going to talk about the implications <laughs> right. for tennis. Um, for the let's say September first, it becomes possible and play resumes. And for now, you know the ATP and WTA are suspended to I think July twelfth, but that date is still subject to change. If they decide to go ahead with a twenty twenty season, do you think a, you know as many events that were pushed back or canceled or postponed? Will, will there be a rush for all of them to try and squeeze in dates during twenty twenty, or do you think primarily there will try and be a, you know just some sort of resetting, resemblance of balance, and we'll play the biggest events maybe, but that's it uh, during the twenty twenty season? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't have a strong sense of that. I would say, mm-hmm. so one th- one thing that is fairly i would say is pretty true about about this pandemic is it's like really revealed um businesses financial security and so i i wouldn't say that events that canceled this year are like financially secure and that it was no problem for them to do that that they weren't going to take a hit that's that's probably not the case but i would say that i i think events that are that have postponed or suspended and are looking for to play in the second half of the year are um in a, in a situation where they probably need to have the tournament um, for whatever reason, you know, or, or, I mean, I don't think anybody's going to look at this and think, well, it would be great to play, you know, let's, let's just try to play because it's fun. You know, there's going to be like much, much more pressing <laughs> needs for you to not have said, you know, we just needed to cancel like a multiple tournament directors that I've spoken to about uh, like, for example, the hall of fame open in Newport. Um, they said we would just, we would not play without fans. We would just cancel. And that's because, you know, the hall of fame has some, has some money in the bank, you know, and, and, and while it would suck and they would, you know, take a wash for this year, you know, you're just, it's, it's just more, um, uh, more beneficial just to, just to eat it and look for next year. Um, These events that are trying to scramble in, in the second half of the year, I, I think one thing I would, I would think is that they're doing, they're all doing modeling and, and, you know, highly, um, highly, uh, technical mathematical formulas to try to figure out, you know, what can we salvage? And I wonder, um, and this is actually a question I should ask the, the two tours, but I wonder if they're asking these tournaments for, for plans of like, you know, or, or, or for information on like how much, how much can you make from a tournament with no fans? How much can you make? Um, or, you know, do you have to have fans, et cetera? And then I wonder if there's going to be some sort of hierarchy where they decide who's going to get um, weeks in the second half of the year because, you know, obviously there's only so many. Um, you also have the huge question for the WTA of, of China. I mean, like, are they are they going to be able to play there? I mean, it's I, that's a long way off, and I feel like they'll be okay. But, um, you know, psychologically, there's going to be a big issue there as well. I think that, I think that – question will be the same for the u.s as well with the the summer um run coming up but um you know because if 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 any more tournaments fall off the calendar then you're starting to find uh, then i think you're going to start to have enough room for um other tournaments to slot in and and i think some of those are probably just sitting on ice right now just kind of waiting to see how the dominoes fall and, and then whether they can you know play in the second half of the year or late in the year um i know they had talked about kind of 
eliminating the off season, which made me chuckle because it's like what four weeks or five weeks. Um, yeah. You know, so I mean, um, I, I think there are tournaments that have um, financial motivations to try and and get anything they can from this year. Um, but you know how they work that out with the with the weeks that are remaining and and. Uh, it's just, uh, it's really complicated and, you know, I, I don't really know. I don't think, I'm not no, sure they no. know. I'm not sure they know. <laughs> no, I mean, all of the players we've talked to, A, they say, you know, this is the longest period we've had off in maybe their careers. And B, yeah. they're like, yeah, and we have no idea when it's going to come back. And right. you referenced <clears throat> this early on in the podcast, but the lack of a commissioner, the lack of a unifying figure to coordinate all of these efforts. And there's something, too, when an organization gets too big, when there becomes too much bureaucracy, it stops to function well. And we don't have to, you know, I know your sports business journal, but we don't have to get into that. And I know there are also antitrust uh, policies that would be violated if the ATP and the WTA were to merge. And that's been part of the problem of them coming together uh, in the past as well. And a little bit of plugging here. We had the chance to talk to former ATP CEO Mark Miles uh, for another podcast that will be released later this week. And he talks about how those competing interests have always existed. Um, But I guess, you know, again, my my question to you here is you look at, you know, all of the jockeying that's going to go on on tour and how difficult it all is with uh, the ATP and WTA merger talks that have emerged. Do you think there is just a push brewing? Do you think this pandemic has exposed certain structural flaws to where there just will have to be better coordination moving forward uh, between the two tours, or, you know, just throughout the game of professional tennis as a whole? And, you know, I guess the second part or a part of that question is how real do you think these merger discussions are? Yeah, I think the discussions are real. And um, the reason the reason that from what I've been told that they're really getting going is um, Godenzi, who, you know, part of his kind of like platform or pitch for the job was to try to pursue this. And he's a guy with a broadcast background. Um, he, he worked in broadcast for ATP um, the last few years before this job. And so I, I think he could look at this from a broadcast standpoint and think, you know, there, there's, I mean, you heard those percentages. That was just from the ATP. You can imagine the WTA is um, probably not as high. And so there's a lot of room to grow there. Um, and and I think that's probably one area or one lens that he's looking at it through. Um, and, you know, I had spoken, I spoke with Mickey Lawler in January when I was uh, interviewing her for a profile. And she brought this up without me even asking about it. It wasn't really even on my radar. Um, so I think the discussions are real as, you know, Rafa Nadal and, and Federer seem to confirm. Um, I think Federer kind of putting it out there into the universe. I, I, I feel like that wasn't him just bored sitting around during the pandemic. You know, I think there were, I think there was some uh, strategy to that as well. Um, I, don't, I don't know exactly what the strategy was, but, you know, him, him lending his clout to this effort, I mean, I think um, gave it some legitimacy right off the bat, you know, um, that that maybe had not been there before. Um, I think the structural issues, like, didn't need a pandemic to be exposed. I think anybody could see they were already, already there. But, um, I mean, if you think about, like, again, for the NBA to suspend its season, Adam Silver has to get on the phone with probably four or five people. Um, you know, some, maybe somebody from the NBA Players Association and then, um, you know, two or three lieutenants and bam, you know, they, they, they've got a decision made. Um, if you think about trying to do that in tennis, first of all, you have to involve seven organizations, each of whom may have, you know, two or three or four people on a call. That's a Zoom call that gets very cloud, uh, very uh, crowded very quickly. Um, you know, so just even the most simple decisions you have to run them through so many people. I mean, imagine, you know, these emails that they're sending out that uh, like the player relief fund, that's got the seven um, logos on the top of it. I'm assuming that that email was seen by seven different uh, communication heads before it went out, you know? And so that just takes a long time. And so, I mean, if you could just streamline things for certain circumstances, you know, I don't, I don't think you would need, um, I don't think you would have to have, for example, say if there was a commissioner of tennis, I don't think you would have to have their input on everything, but there are certain situations where it would be incredibly 
useful, you know, like a, a situation like this, like pandemic or, or like if you had a big gambling uh, scandal or, or whatever, you know, to, to have somebody that could move very quickly, I think would be hugely beneficial, um, you know, pull the sport in one direction. I mean, you know, I think the French, I think the French Open Roland Garros folks got um, panicky, you know, based on what was going on and made a move that, that um, kind of jumped the gun in a lot of people's eyes. But, you know, you can also see um, where they may have viewed it as like, well, if we try to talk this out, <laughs> it's going to take forever, you know, and it, and it may not go <laughs> like we want. So they, they just went for it, you know, kind of that easier to ask forgiveness than permission. Um, and I think that kind of in a way speaks to how unwieldy the sport of tennis is um, pro tennis um, to get anything done is just like this Herculean effort. And and so I think that has been shown. We, we already knew about the division and everything like that, that, you know, people pulling in different directions, but um, I think uh, the, the pandemic has shown that other side of it as well, that, that it's just very difficult to, um, get get anything decided when you have so many people involved. Mm-hmm. Last serious question for you, and then I want to do a couple of fun ones before we wrap. But same sort of idea, but a player union. Because again, they're all individual contractors. The interests for the players at the top of the game are so vastly different than those players ranked outside. You know, the top one hundred, the top two hundred, and it gets more vast. You know, the changes become greater and greater. The differences as you descend further down the rankings, but. Uh, Player unions, same as the sports commissioner, uh, they're not new concepts, but just again, given the flaws in the operational, in the way tennis operates, I suppose, which as you mentioned correctly, were well evident to many of us who were looking uh, for them before. Uh, do you think there will be a push now? Because yes, there are player councils right now for the ATP and WTA, but how powerful they are, how substantive they are, up for debate. Do you think there will be a push to have a more formally recognized union? moving forward um let's see so like if you were ranking the likelihood of um uh tennis coming together under one banner or um the atp and wta merging or like the player a players union happening um i would say players union to me seems the least likely um and i think that's because there's so many more different experiences um so many more cultures than, you know, that, than the tournaments or the tours, um, or the governing bodies. Um, and I just, I think like even Dominic team's comments, you know, just sort of like, well, hold on a minute. You know, I mean, I, I just think there's always going to be that. And if it doesn't happen this year, because Noah Rubin, you may have, I'm sure you've interviewed him. He's been on a bunch of podcasts, but when I, when I talked to him in March, um, uh, and then I talked to Vashik Pospisil as well. You know, they they were saying that this is a rare occasion when you're not just playing and traveling and playing and traveling and practicing and playing and traveling, you know, that people can sit down and think about things. So if it's ever going to happen, I really feel like this year would be the year. But I just, I think they're, again, pulling in so many different directions. I think there's so many different motivations. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of, uh, the the players that have the clout, I don't think have the as much concern. You know, I mean, they don't they don't want their fellow players to to suffer and struggle. But in a normal year, they're really probably not worried about them. I mean, this is not a normal year, so they probably are thinking about you know their their loss of revenue and things. But I mean, would they be concerned any other year? I mean, I re- I really don't think so. So, um, it, you know, and you've got um, there's a lot of. Uh, entities in tennis that have their hands in different in different pots and so i think that kind of in some ways can work against it i mean you know you have agencies that um own tournaments that represent players that are on you know that are heavily involved in broadcast deals and so you know there's a lot of entities that um are you don't always know what their motivations are exactly and 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 you're not convinced that they would want uh to see players united as well uh, you know i don't say that with 100 uh, percent knowledge of their thinking but um there's just a lot of competing interests even among the players and and the people that are involved with the players that i think could kind of kind of slow that down so i mean and then again you've got men and women you know where they have a separate would they have a separate union or um 
you know, would they be united under under the same players association? I mean, it's just it's a really difficult thing to to make happen because there's so many people involved. I mean, how, where do you cut it off? You know, they kind of saw that with the player relief fund. You know, where who who's worthy of the money and who's not? Um, and so, who gets a who gets a voice or a vote in a in a players union and who doesn't? I mean, that's they're like really complicated um, questions that you know it, it requires a couple people to take it on and i think that's happening right now i know noah rubin is doing that i know vashik is probably thinking about that as well but um you know i i I just don't think that one's going to (laughs) happen no no i i think that's completely fair there's a reason why it hasn't for all these times and those interests though heightened or maybe uh the the differing interests while uh not heightened in this moment still certainly exist moving forward so that's an interesting one um uh, last two questions for you i promise a what is the most enjoyable part about covering the business of tennis i would say so how different it is from the rest of the uh sports that are in my uh my magazine <laughs> in my company's magazine um i basically any story we write i can write a story that's like and this is why that doesn't work for tennis <laughs> because it's it is um so different and uh unique and and definitely not always in a good way but um you know i was a, i was a history major and i i like geography huge uh soccer fan you know, i love international soccer and so tennis is um, a cool sport to cover because it's got a lot of the same aspects, you know, and it's also, it's also like kind of a ritzy, you know, sort of glamorous sport. Um, you know, the settings are generally pretty, pretty attractive. The stadiums are gorgeous. You know, the backdrops are usually pretty cool looking and, uh, um, you know, nice sport to watch. I mean, I, I enjoy watching it too, but, um, it, it's the international aspect of it is really cool. Cause it creates a, it creates a lot of, uh, uh, good and bad, um, things to write about. Yeah, I, I, it definitely is different. Uh, there's no denying that. That's part of what makes it so enjoyable. I completely agree with you there. All right, I hear a baby in the background. <laughs> I know you are a recently turned father. Uh, yeah. The highlights of young fatherhood. Oh, um, yeah, I just sent a text and please hush her. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, she's not allowed. No, yeah. it's completely okay. No, it's not a problem at all. She's like four rooms over, too. That's what's impressive. <laughs> um, I can only imagine the color of her face. Um no, it's uh, it's been interesting. I would say the highlight so far has been um, this has been a silver lining for us um, during this pandemic. Is um, I didn't have paternity leave from my job, so um, I we've worked I've worked from home for over two months. Um, so that's been pretty cool to be able to spend a lot of time with her every day, um, which I think has made it easier on my wife as well, um, who's not working for four months. So um, for maternity leave, so. Uh, it's just been really cool to to be around her a lot. It's interesting to see how like kind of quickly they grow when you take them to see somebody else. Um, you know, the few people we're able to visit, you know, they'll they'll say, "Oh my gosh, you're so big," you know, and you don't you don't really even notice it. So um, that's that's kind of wild. But um, it, but it has been weird too. My wife's family's from New York, and they haven't seen her yet. So that's that's been um, kind of difficult. Seeing her in person, that is, that's mm-hmm. been kind of difficult. But um, no, it's been a, it's been a blessing, and I send pictures of her to a lot of people who I, I think uh, I've appreciated just, you know, a baby, a baby <laughs> picture in their phone, you know, on maybe what, what's been a difficult day here and there, you know, during this super weird situation. No, no, no doubt. I would say much like you, her, she has a powerful voice in her community. That's so <laughs> why we can hear her uh, for well four rooms over. And, yeah. yeah, and as I mentioned, as the son of an OB Jin, uh, I'm all for it. So, yeah. yes, that yeah. is so awesome. And I, you know, I don't want to take you away from her for too long. So I will just ask you lastly, for people who are interested in, if you're listening, again, a listener to our Cracked Rackets uh podcast you have heard me mention uh brett's your work i should say before but can you let all of our listeners know where they can find all of your stuff yeah on twitter is is where i am the most uh so that's at b-r-e-t-j-u-s-t number one t so brett just one t uh, and I've, I've you, I, I just want you to know that I was going to say that earlier and I was like, I don't get it. Brett, just one T. And now I, I like, I feel like such an idiot because it's B R E T not B R E T T. And that is exactly. clever. That is really <laughs> well done. Thank you. Thank you. That one is in honor of my aunt from Alabama who used to send me a, a Christmas card every year that 
spelled my name with an extra T and included a gift certificate to a store that was not within three states of us. <laughs> so that's for her. Um, and, and most of my, all my work will be there. We're, Sports Business Journal has a pretty stringent paywall, but we do, I do want to shout out, we have a uh, uh, newsletter called Unpacks, which uh, we're publishing every night and it's be, uh, in front of the paywall. It's free to anyone to read. Um, and it's looking at, you know, just little bits about how uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is impacting American sports business. I would highly recommend checking it out. It's uh, kind of a crash course and just all of the, it's incredible the like trickle down impacts of this thing all the way from, you know, the NBA, uh, you know, or NFL, you know, these big leagues and all the way on down to the, to the, um, you know, economic uh, uh, micro worlds that, that live off of these sports, you know, and tennis has been um, no exception. I've been writing about some of the small businesses that have been, um, struggling, you know, as the tours are suspended. So those are at sportsbusinessjournal.com, and, and I'm also uh, tweeting them um, fairly regularly. So I would recommend checking those out if you want to see kind of the, the stuff that we write about. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's at Brett Just One T, which makes way too much sense now that <laughs> I think about it. Uh, and se- seriously, Brett, thank you for taking the time to chat. I am a huge fan of your work. Keep doing what you're doing. Good luck, uh, you know, being quarantined with such a young baby, of course. But, you know, whenever you write a big piece, please just send me a text before it comes out because we would love to have you back on in the future. Yeah, definitely do it. And uh, maybe we'll get to cross paths at some some real life tennis events. Um but I'm thinking probably next year. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously, God willing. I heard, yeah. a, well, I, I can't get into the rumor. I'll tell you off mic, but yes, to answer your question, I completely agree with you. Hopefully we'll yeah. get to cross paths in person sometime soon, but stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks so much. Hope you all enjoyed my conversation with Sports Business Journal's Brett McCormick. Again, it's rare that we get to see insight into the nuances, the finances of professional tennis. There's usually so much play going on throughout the world on a weekly, you know, even daily basis. So it's hard to take time to step back and look at the bigger picture, uh, you know, the bigger challenges that tennis faces as an organization as a whole. And it's great, you know... If you're finding one of the silver linings of this quarantine, it's that we've all had time to look at the bigger issues, you know, financially and uh, tactically that are facing the professional sport of tennis. And of course, again, thank you to Brett for offering us some insight into what's going on right now behind the scenes. If you want to hear another great podcast on this theme, check out the GSP we did earlier in the week with former ATP CEO Mark Miles. Yes, you know, Brett is locked in, but you know who knows how an or- how the organization of tennis runs? Uh, try the former CEO of the ATP, and that's exactly what Mark Miles was. We talk about the ongoing merger discussions and, you know, so much more with him. So I think all of you will enjoy that. And of course, if you want to hear about the daily developments going on from throughout the professional tennis world, be sure to go check out our mini break podcast as well. Be sure to check out the Cracked Interviews podcast. We've had guests such as John Wertheim, Ben Rothenberg, Tumaini Cariel, Steve Weissman, Andy Katz, and more uh, talking about the structural changes that tennis may undergo as a result of this global pandemic and you know the implications are numerous and they're far-reaching so you you know if you want to stay on top of all of the information that's coming out be sure to like rate subscribe review all of the podcasts and you know maybe share them with your friends as well at this point we're all looking for conversation starters and certainly we like to have fun on our podcast so maybe they can start a conversation or two amongst you and your tennis friends so be sure to go check them out if you've missed any of our other content be sure to go to our website crackedrackets.com i know you listeners are already subscribed to to our YouTube channel, but if for some reason you're not, you're missing out on just the fantastic products that super producer Daniel Westoff is firing out on that YouTube channel. I'm looking at him edit the latest episode of CR Classics right now. That'll be a really fun conversation I had with Ben Rothenberg a couple weeks ago. I'm not going to say what the podcast was or what the match we discussed was, but I know you all will enjoy it, so be on the lookout for that. And of course, if you need your immediate fixes throughout the day, like, rate, subscribe, review to this podcast, Great Shot Podcast, Mini Break Podcast, The Inside Out podcast, but also be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You know, feel free to send us a DM, a message at Crack Rackets. I'm at Great Shot Pod. Uh, I mentioned it earlier, but shout out as always to the super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, for the <laughs> of an editing job they do day in, day out. They make all of these podcasts possible, so shout out to the, the two of them for continuing to do all of that hard work. Uh, again, we're rocking and rolling here at Crack Rackets. Our job is to ensure that you guys have the sort of content 
content you need to get us through these quarantine times. And if we can provide any of you with even just a momentary break from the daily stresses that we're all dealing with, then we will be doing our job here. So thank you all for listening. Thank you again to Brett McCormick of Sports Business Journal for taking the time uh, to chat with us today. For those of you curious in more of his work, again, be sure to go check out at BrettJust1T on Twitter. That's funny because his name, Brett McCormick, it's spelled B-R-E-T. Uh, so great, hey, great shot to him. But with that being said, for our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, our friends at DraftKings, my wonderful guest today, Brett McCormick of Sports Business Journal, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. Hey, great shot, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.